Hello, I'm Ben Keane, your host, and you're listening to a Virgin Startup podcast produced with support from our friends at Virgin Money. Virgin Startup Meetups are free events designed for founders just like you to hear from incredible people and network with like-minded entrepreneurs. We hope that you come away from them feeling inspired with some practical action which you can take into your own startup. This week, I had the pleasure of meeting Susie Ma. Susie's a real superstar founder, having set up Tropic Skincare in partnership with Sir Alan Sugar after her appearance on The Apprentice. Since then, Susie's taken the skincare world by storm, and Tropic is now one of the fastest growing businesses in the UK. Pretty impressive stuff. She was full of wisdom and inspiration to help aspiring founders out there take the next step. Enjoy this conversation with Susie, and remember that all our meetups are available as podcasts. Please subscribe, review, and rate to help others discover our podcast. I'd love to welcome live on the Virgin Startup stage the one and only founder of Tropic Skincare, Susie Ma. And I've got some summer tunes for Susie. Here we go. Come and join me. Otherwise, I'm just going to do this for the next 45 minutes. Susie, hi! Where are my shades and my drink? I've just got water here. That's not very exciting. Uh, maybe that's the secret. Just water and not, no distractions. Oh. So this is a tune. When I was when I was reading and about your backstory and trying to immerse myself in your world a little bit, at least online before tonight, I, I there's this brilliant playlist on Spotify called um, Pure Sunshine, and the opening track is called uh, by Miriam Akiba, Pata Pata. It's like a seventies Nigerian like jam. And it's just full of sunshine and like old school goodness. So um, I'll send you the list afterwards. But it's like, yeah, this is the vibe. I look forward to it. And I need the shades and the drink as well in my hand to match all that music. Amazing. Well, you're looking full of sunshine. And I don't know how much that's down to you and your lifestyle versus your, your products. But we'll get into it. Um, and as you can see, we've got all these people joining us from all over the world. Some A small number from your uh, yes. tropic. Tropic Army. Uh, I, can, I can see that. I, massive shout out to all of our gorgeous ambassadors. And I'm also seeing lots of founders, lots of interesting businesses. I can see people saying what they do. So, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. so feel, we're feeling your energy, everybody. So thanks for being with us. So, Susie, you've kindly said, hey, let's go, you know, feel free to dive into uh, all the aspects of, uh, of my life and experience that will be helpful to people. So we appreciate your generosity um, in advance. And I guess where we wanted to start was really your childhood, because you've been very open over your years leading your leading your business and in your entrepreneurial public life of talking about where you've come from, your roots, yeah. and like how that shaped you. And of course, it shapes all of us. But with you, it seems to be particular, particularly powerful. So I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, going all the way back to when you first moved to Sydney. I know you were only like six years old, weren't you? And, and, I was, and, yeah. and tell us a little bit about why your family moved there and then what happened in those formative years of your life and in terms of how it, how it kind of shaped you as a person. Yeah. So, yes. So indeed I did move to Sydney when I was six years old and, um, and I moved there because, so my mum and I were still living in China at that time. And my dad moved over to Australia when I was one to essentially start a new life and to get better opportunities. You know, often when people immigrate from one country to the other, it's for better opportunities for their family. Um, and so when my mum and I moved over to Sydney and uh, when I was six, it was just to join my dad. 
And I think, you know, what's interesting is, you know, you often tend to do or you're often interested in the things that your parents are interested in and often mm. what they do. And starting up businesses is really like on my dad's side, especially everything that they've ever done. So I kind of grew up hearing about stories of my dad's mum. I often talk about my mum's mum, who's the inspiration behind all of the formulations, the products. She's a toxicologist, you know, the ethics behind the products. But on my dad's side, that's where the real entrepreneurial flair comes up. So I grew up hearing about stories of my dad's mother, my grandmother. Um, Is this the, the, the this woman who had the Thai business? Yes. Yeah, that's okay. it. Ben. Yeah. So she's the reason why my dad was able to afford to go to Australia in the first place, because she started oh. up her own business. And I grew up hearing stories about the way she hustled and the way she made things work. And when my dad moved over to, over to Australia, because of his lack of English, he started just working on the, on the street as a street vendor, importing toys and souvenirs from, uh, from China and literally just selling in the streets of Sydney, like in, by Sydney Harbour, wherever there was any footfall. And that's how he made a living. And when my mum and I joined him in Australia, that's how we helped him to make a living as well. So whether it's, you know, I remember New Year's Eve every year we'd go and we sell these glow sticks and like the things that you throw up in the air that lights up. And, you know, it's only a dollar, but we, we made a killing. Like we sold hundreds and hundreds of them on that night and we made a lot of money. And I kind of just grew up watching my parents struggle, come up with an idea, bring over a product, go to a market or if there's not a market that they can afford to pay the store fee, you know, go onto the streets and just make things work. So it was really inspirational growing up, seeing all of that and just knowing that actually if you have, you know, where there is a will, there is a way. And if you have a passion for something and you, and you want to make things work, you can always make things work. So you know what, you know what, Susie, that's, um, that's a great, great insight into your early years. But I think I was one of your dad's customers because I remember in no. 99 being under Sydney Harbour Bridge on the opposite side from the Opera House, on just starting out my travels into the world and joining in this party. And I was like, my God, these people know how to celebrate New Year, like that waterfall of fireworks off Sydney Harbour Bridge. Yeah. And we all bought glow sticks from a street vendor. Well, in 1999, so. Ben, I think we were already in, in Cairns. So we we'd gone. You scaled up. <laughs> that's scaled not about, up. That's our competitors. So that's all there good. There we go. And and yeah. with when you I presume I'm assuming that that your the drive for your dad and your parents at that stage was was purely like survival, like getting a foothold into economically into society. Was there ever anything like okay, this is what you know? How did they do their market research? Was it just like okay? We think glow sticks are going to sell well in this part of the city. How do they figure that stuff out? They just watched what other people did, what worked well. So they always kept a very close eye on, you know, what other people were selling. Obviously, my dad was not the first person to sell glow sticks at, you know, on New Year's Eve. Other people were doing it. He just thought about how he could make it better. If there was a, a, a an, like a better place that he could stand where there's more footfall for him to sell at. Um, but, you know, things don't always work out. And actually in Sydney, my parents and I, like we weren't very successful in making money. And mm. that's why we ended up moving to Cairns in the end um, because there was this new opportunity. Cairns was back then, I think we moved over in like the, like the mid nineties, I think. And um, when we moved over, Cairns was a new town, lots of t- tourism, especially from Japan, lots and lots of footfall. And your money stretched a lot further. Um, because mm. Sydney was becoming more and more expensive. 
And so we uprooted. I remember we actually drove all the way from Sydney to Cairns. Um, and I'm actually really ashamed to say this, but I remember before we left, my dad and my mum, they couldn't actually afford to pay our rent. And we could, I think we were like three months behind on our rent. And we actually just got up and we left because we couldn't, we literally couldn't afford it. So Which that's is fri- a frightening position to be in. Like, yeah, so landlord didn't get, our, didn't get our rent for three months. Um, well, maybe they're a tropic skincare ambassador and they've got their return. Yeah. Um, but you, but you, I mean, in your story that I've read about at that stage of your life, you also were quite, quite recluse child, a reclusive child, like in that, that sort of shaped you as a person as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I suppose when I was in China as a child, I was very, I was very outgoing. I was like in, in kindergarten in China, I was, you know, like the, the prefect in, in the class back not the prefect but the equivalent of like the leader and always had lots of friends and lots to do lots of involvement but the moment I went to Australia I very much felt like the outsider um obviously I looked completely different I couldn't speak the language my parents had no money so I couldn't afford to have nice things nice toys and kids do judge you on that and obviously I didn't go to the best schools in the beginning so they were quite rough so I did kind of become very you know in my own little bubble um didn't have any friends, didn't talk to anyone else, was really just afraid of putting myself out there. And so much so that I actually had, um, my mum used to make me wear like this, this thing on my back and it was like a straight piece of board to keep my back straight because I was always completely hunched over. And I, and I remember just wanting to make myself invisible and just as small as possible because I didn't want to be noticed because I was afraid of how people would perceive me. So, so especially in Sydney, I was very, I don't think, you know, as a child from six to nine, I wasn't in a very good place. No, and that really understandably why that's so hard. Ava's basically on, on the chat, get on and write the book of your life, Sue, as well. You're hearing, you're hearing it in real time now. Someone type it up as we go. Um, so... So you had that. So, that, so in your bubble. So, what are the positives about that bubble? Like, did you like bury yourself in learning? What did you explore? Exactly. What, what shaped you? Exactly. So, in those early years, so my parents used to work ridiculous hours, seven days a week. They'd be out from like ten o'clock in the morning. They wouldn't be back until about midnight. Um, and what my dad used to do is he used to take me to like the equivalent of a blockbuster back then, but it was like a small local Australian shop. Um, and he used to take me to like the dollar section where there was all these VCRs. Do you, do you call them VCRs? Mm, yeah. The videotapes. Videotapes. And he used to be like, you can pick one film um, every day. You can watch one film. So I used to just pick a random film. And that's how I kind of just watched the films, taught myself English through watching all these films. Um, and then just buried myself in studying. Like maths was my go-to. It was the thing that, made sense and mm. my dad bought me lots of like maths puzzles and completely nerdy just various things and just taught myself and just literally buried myself in learning and I thought that if I couldn't have friends and I couldn't be involved in school and stuff I can at least be intelligent and, and learn and, and do well in exams so that maybe one day in the future I can get a good job. So, and did you do you remember a film from those VHS tapes that st- stands out in terms of helping you with your English in your in those early days? So I used to be really like obsessed with Hercules and Xena. So I don't know if you remember. I don't. They, they were like the actual, not the cartoon, but the actual like acting ones. 
And I had all, I watched them all. And I just thought it, it was, especially for Xena, like this warrior princess who's like super badass and strong and she's out there slaying men and dragons. And, and I remember looking at her and thinking, gosh, that would be amazing if I could, I don't know, if I could do like a millimeter of, of what she's capable of. Um, but yeah, just seeing what women could achieve, even though I knew it was fiction. But it's a, it's an interesting reflection of like maybe where your hidden ambition was, or you're like we all have our dreams, right? But Zena, <laughs> the kind of old school Lara Croft, she's up there, right? Um, yeah, I just I just about remember her as well, but I don't think I ever channeled myself as well as you did to to be more like her. Um, so so moving on from Sydney, of course, it feels like there's a, a gap that I want to figure out between there and like when you like went to market in Greenwich, age fifteen. Yeah. So, Tell, tell like bridge that gap for us. How did you end up in London and then and then, you know, starting an entrepreneurial project? Yeah. So, um, so as I mentioned, from Sydney, we then moved to Cairns after two or three years um, to start up a new life. And Cairns was actually much better. What's really interesting, actually, and this is something that will be good for um, the the entrepreneurs in this group is that when, so my parents were selling these little, um, I don't know if you guys remember like, like the beetles in the wooden boxes that had like wobbly legs. Mm. So, so it's not quite that, but imagine those beetles, take it out of the box, put that beetle on a magnet, and rather than just a beetle, think of any animal. And that's what my parents used to sell, these little magnetic creatures with wobbly legs and their bodies and heads were made out of pistachio nutshells. Like it was amazing. Wow. They're all handcrafted. They were from China in this factory that they sent over. So my parents used to sell those on like a on like a clothing rack with a with a metal piece of board on the clothing rack, and all the animals would be stuck on magnetically to this board that they would shake, and all the legs and arms would wobble. Um, and they used to sell them for one dollar per animal in Sydney on the streets of Chinatown. But when we moved to Cairns. My, we only could take a certain number of stock um, up with us because we just had one car full of stuff and we couldn't get the stock in. There was a shipment delay. And all of a sudden, my dad realized that he had very little supply. And so what he did was just because of supply and demand, he increased his price from one dollar to four dollars for one, because that's how little stock he had. And what was interesting was that sales actually increased um, which blew his mind because you think the cheaper something is, the more you would sell. But actually increasing it from $1 to $4 gave it a greater perception of, of value. Mm. And, and people were like, oh, this is like a proper piece of art that's handcrafted as opposed to a piece of cheap souvenir. Um, so that was a big lesson learned. And I remember learning that with my parents and, and talking, and I remember them talking about it. And then they were like creating these clever ways of upselling. So, okay, what happens if we say like three for 10 pounds and you make a saving of two pounds? And that did really well. Anyway, so, so, we, so we did I kind of listen to those conversations from my parents for a few years. But essentially, my parents' marriage broke down. Um, my dad wasn't quite the man that we expected him to be. And my mom and I actually tried to leave quite a few number of times. Um, and then in the end, we decided to go somewhere that he wouldn't be able to just pop over and, and, and see us. And I remember when we were deciding where we would go, I had a globe um, of the world in front of me with my mum, and I was spinning this globe and thinking, where should we go? And it just so happened that my mum knew someone who lived in London. And as I was mm -hmm. spinning, my finger actually stopped on the UK. 
And my mum was like, this is a sign. You know, you, your fingers stop there. You're, you're spinning it. And I've just done that. It could have stopped anywhere. I suppose the UK is located at the, you know, towards the top of the globe. It was easier. But we decided that actually let's just, we've got, we've got nothing to lose. Let's just go to London. And so when I was 13 years old, my mother and I kind of packed up as much as we could. And we bought a one-way ticket to London to live with this woman who was my who was a friend of a friend. Um, but what ended up happening was when we arrived in London, this lady turned her back on us and she didn't want to give us a place to stay. Her reasoning was that she was afraid that we would never leave her home. Um, and she wanted us to, to just do it on our own. And so we ended up staying in like a, a homestay when someone gives away a room in the house for a certain amount of money. But very quickly, we were really running out of money. And I think for a long time, my mom and I really, really struggled. We ended up renting our own flat, but it was just, it was just awful. Like we would have to call up my dad and ask him for money. He knew where we were by that point. And he was asking us to come back to him in the UK, um, in Australia, but we didn't want to leave the UK and go back to ours. And so in the end, it was just a choice of we either make more money so we can stay in the UK and have our own independent lives, or we would have to go back to Australia because we simply couldn't survive in London. My mum at that time was working on a market stall at Greenwich Market selling the same thing, and she just wasn't selling enough. Um, and that's when I decided to start up my business. And it actually took me probably over a year to pick up, like to kind of plan everything. I mean, it doesn't sound like much. I don't know how many of you guys know about my origins and how I started, but it was just literally 50 jam jars filled up with a body scrub recipe that my grandma used to make in Australia. And um, it doesn't sound like much, but it literally took me a year of talking to myself about it to, to get everything together and actually to get there to Greenwich Market on, you know, on a on a certain Saturday over the summer school holidays. So, yeah, that was when I was 15, and that's when it all started. So that's the gap. Wow, wow. And, you know, just layers of stress there for you and well, well, all your family involved, um, especially I can imagine for your mother, and then being passed on to you in the process as well. Um, how did you How did you carve out that energy? Like, because a lot of what the story, your story is, you know, entrepreneurship through necessity or like kind of necessity is the mother of all invention of course is that classic cliche but it's like whereas most of us here um in this community have chosen this path still bravely right but not but not out of being in a a really tough situation and going there's only i can only see like entrepreneurship as the way out so how did you <laughs> gather that energy was it really like i need to help my mother or was it like actually here's like my grandma my grandma's body scrub recipe maybe i could do something here when did it go from like pain to excitement was it the moment you started making stuff yeah i mean it was so so a few questions there ben you know it's it's, it's a few things because yes it was to help my mother you know my mum was at a stage when she was crying almost every single night and i could hear her in her bedroom and it was heartbreaking you mm. know i was at that time i was 13 and i just felt so helpless i didn't really know what i could do um, and I did everything I could. I used to help my mum sell over the weekend on her stall. And I worked for other storeholders as well at Greenwich Market from, you know, selling various things on just very, very little wage. But I knew it wasn't enough. So my mum was obviously the biggest reason. 
But aside from that, it was also because of the people that I was surrounded by. So my friends at school and they had money, you know, Mm. when it was people's birthdays, my friends could afford to buy presents for each other. And I remember, I mean, my, my friend now, so her name's Annabelle. She's one of my best friends and she doesn't know the story, but back in, back when I was 14 years old, I remember it was her birthday and she was one of my best friends back then as well. And I wanted to give her a birthday present. And I asked my mum for some money. I, I asked her for £10 to buy her something. And my mum just said, I don't have £10, but I have £5. And I was like, oh, gosh, £5 for a birthday. I don't know if that's enough. But I think you'll be okay because I'll just give Annabelle something else as well as the £5. So I remember finding like a, a little like teddy bear that I already had. Um, it was one of the few toys that I had brought over from Australia to the UK. It wasn't like, it wasn't brand new because obviously it was mine, but it was like this cute little teddy. It, it was one of my favorite toys, one of my only toys and this five pounds. And I wrapped it up and I gave it to Annabelle and I was like the most, it was like the most expensive thing I'd ever bought anyone well, given anyone because it was five pounds, which to me was a lot of money. Mm. And I remember she opened the gift and in amongst all of her other gifts that she had around her from all of her other friends, which were amazing gifts relative to what I gave her. And she just went, oh, God, why did you give me five pounds on a teddy? You could have just given me 10 pounds. And to her, that was such a, you know, she didn't mean anything by it. It was a throwaway comment because she was used to more. But for me, mm. I remember that moment, like even to this day, because it was so crushing. And I remember thinking, gosh, I wish I could give you 10 pounds, but why can't I? Like, why can't I give one of my best friends what she's getting from all of her other friends? Like, why does my mum and I have to be trapped in this tiny flat with all these notice letters that we're getting every week, fearful of having to move back to Australia, fearful of having our electrics cut out, fearful of how we're gonna be able to afford our next meal when all of my other friends are just living their lives and not having to think about any of that. And it was a realization of just thinking, I don't deserve this. You know, my mom and I, we're good people. We're nice, we're intelligent, we're capable. Why the hell are we trapped in this cycle that I like? I can't see a way out of it? My mom works at a market store. Her English isn't fantastic. And I'm 13, like, what can I do? Mm. And it's just deciding that actually, no, I deserve more. My mum deserves more. So that was the reason why I started Tropic. And that was actually the first moment that I got excited. Yeah. I and it, I was going to do something. And what I love about it, although painful at the time, it was like driven from a place of love, even though your friend was being a little selfish, if we're honest. But <laughs> from your point of view, it was driven by love. Then it turned into anger. And then into this, yeah. like, the output on the other side was, like, something really positive. It was the beginning yeah, of Yeah, and just frustration. Yeah. And, and, you know, once you decide something and you and you know exactly what you want, which for me was I need to you know get my mom and I out of the situation. It's easy to get passionate about it, isn't it? Because it's your life and it's for people whom you really care about. Yeah. And we can hear that listening to you tell that story, you know, 25 years or however many years yeah. exactly it is further on. So there you go. You got it. You got the product out into the world. You got your grandma's um trademark well maybe not trademark for SMG, <laughs> for body scrub and then and then tell us how the those early days of the business went because you're still very young like yeah. what pace did you go at uh, when did it become like a real thing like this is this is now my thing I'm going to go all in on how did you manage your education alongside it yeah so 
my education was actually my number one priority. So my, my goal initially was to make enough money to be able to fund my way through school and through university so that I could get an amazing job. And I remember talking to um, one of the teachers at school and I asked her like, okay, so I need to get rich basically. I need to have lots of money. I don't wanna be in a bad situation. What job can I get into to get me the most amount of money fastest? She was like, finance, easy. Like if you wanna make money, you go into finance. Um, you know, you wanna get into banking, investment banking ideally. You wanna do economics, you wanna do maths. You wanna do well in your A-levels, preferably three A's. Um, four would be better to get into one of the top unis and then you're sorted. And I was like, excellent. That is exactly what I will do. And so that was my main driver. And so I, I worked out how much money I needed to earn to save up for my degree. Um, and then I just I just went out one day. Um, actually, we just celebrated our birthday. Um, I actually started 17 years ago on Sunday. So wow. just gone. The 20th of June was our 17 year anniversary. And um, so, yeah, 17 years ago. On last Sunday, I went to Greenwich Market with my 50 jam jars and started demonstrating my, my grandma's body scrub. I knew that demonstration was the only way to sell products. You know, for those of you guys who are um, starting up in your business, you know, one of the biggest piece of advice that I would give you in terms of selling a product is that don't expect your customer to be waiting for your product. There is no one out there that's waiting to buy your product from you. There's no one that was waiting to buy my body scrub from me. And customers aren't going to approach you. You know, if you just put an advert out there into the ether and on social media and be like, look at my body scrub, look at my gorgeous product, buy it. No one will. You have to give something in order to get something back. Like I learned that through demonstrating, you know, shaking the table with my, with the wiggly creatures for my mom. I used to sell elastic band guns and getting people involved and show them how to shoot it. You know, whether it's glow stick demonstrations, um, I knew I had to demonstrate my product. So I gave free hand treatments where people would come over. I'd scrub their hands for them, mm. leave their hands feeling super smooth and smelling great and really soft. And then I would say, this is how much it would cost. So, you know, that's how I sold. And on the very first day, I took 980 pounds in cash. Well, whoa, whoa, day one in the market. Day one in the market. I had 50 body, body scrubs to sell. I remember yeah. the lesson from my dad with, um, if you remember, the we called them the wiggly creatures back then. Yeah. It was a dollar. He sold it for $4. I remember thinking, let's go big or go home. My body scrub is amazing. I know it's packaged in jam jars. I know I've printed out a label that I print sticked on, but I'm going to sell it for 20 quid. Like, that's a lot of money. For one Seven, jam jar of homemade scrub. One jam jar of body scrub. I sold it for 20 pounds. I only had 50. I thought I was going to sell maybe like two. But I sold out. I took one as a, as a demonstration product to make people's hands feel soft. And I sold all 49 on my very first day at 20 pounds each. That was 980 pounds in cash on my first day. You, so, you, you smashed it. I mean, that is setting the bar high on day one. And yeah. uh, you also managed to, like, obviously corner the hipster market when whatever year it was in Greenwich. That's amazing. And it reminds me, this pricing lesson is so important that you got from your yeah. dad. And then you demonstrated again. Uh, at that market and I, the the lesson i i work on with founders at virgin startup is is this one where you go okay imagine your early price so if you're not doing it by necessity like your dad was and then you were but if you're if you're like okay well what should i price it at forget the market forget what it, the competition um okay imagine a price that you think you're going to start with then go up take it up get to a point where you're like oh my god that feels uncomfortable then add 20 percent 
and go, that's really uncomfortable. I'd struggle to ask someone for that money for that product. And then go, okay, I'm starting with this. How do I take the quality of the product or the service up to where that matches? And then go out and try and sell it. And it's one of these lessons where you can kind of go, it's it's so easy for us to talk about this. Yeah. But to put it into practice and to put it, I mean, it's easier online, right? Just stick a price out there. You can always discount. But to go and do that, but your reminder then of like giving giving something first is such a good one. And, um, and it's such a powerful story. So thank you for sharing. I'd love to hear a little bit. And I know we've got such a, a big audience of ambassadors here as well. A little bit around how you went from that first product to building a, a significant business, and 17 years is a huge, huge amount that's happened. But how did you get in the skincare world? How did you say, right, we're going to stand for uh, a cleaner, greener, healthier version of, of skincare brand? And then, like, once that purpose was clear, how did you go about like figuring out the supply chain? Because this is hard, right? Yeah. What you did in the market was remarkable, but then turning it into a the business model of you know all these ambassadors training them educating them how do you how did you figure it out what came next was it was it product was it business model what was yeah, the next so step in the journey it was more product it was more product in in the next journey so um so after that first day just carried on with the body scrub probably for about 2 or 3 years until i okay. introduced my next product and you'll find that in business in the beginning it's very slow um it's kind of like you know and then it snowballs and it gathers momentum but in that time, I realized that I was 15 years old. I was doing my GCSEs and then my A-levels, then my degree on my path to become this banker. And I had to, you know, my business was a little bit on the back burner, but I had to keep it going in order to, to you know, for, for that, for my dream to come true with my, with my future job. And so I really did very little with it. I just, I just tried to, I just tried to sell it whenever I could. I expanded with the one product that I knew sold well um, with my friends, getting them to sell also for me on commission. I paid them 20% commission and I sent them across different markets and events, be it Portobello Market, be it Camden Market, be it various events and shows across London. Um, I did the Vitality Show and the Ideal Home Show. I don't know if you guys have been to it in Elscourt yeah. 1 and Elscourt 2. And I like literally got 17, 18 salespeople and just replicated what I did at Greenwich Market. So gave them the exact same tools, more stalls. I hired like really amazing actors, actresses, you know, singers, performers, people who were confident to come and yes. sell on commission and they smashed yeah. it. And that's how I kind of grew the business from the beginning. So with with my original sales model, if you like, with, with people being paid on commission, I then trained myself up on um, skincare formulations. There's various courses that you can take, kind of taught myself chemistry. And I expanded the product range, just like hardly any, like into one facial scrub, a moisturizer and a facial cleanser, which we still have today. So like four products and then just had those four products up until I kind of finished university at 21 and, and that was when I actually got my, so I did everything that this career advisor said. I got my A-levels. I got my degree in economics. Probably the only person who ever has followed the career advisor's advice. <laughs> I followed it pretty like the T. Yeah. Um, but then really, you know, spent 10 weeks in this, this job in investment banking, realized absolutely it was not for me. Um, and then that's when I started to apply for various investment opportunities to expand. And you know, and I think, you know, for those of you who are looking for investment, um, apply everywhere. Do not put all your eggs in one basket. And so, um, yes, yeah, so The Apprentice was one of the things that I applied for. Obviously, I didn't win the show, but 
Almond Sugar did invest in the end. Um, so just just for pause there for those that haven't didn't see The Apprentice. What year was this, and how old were you? I was twenty one. That yeah. was back in I want to say twenty ten was when I was on the show. I think it aired. No, I think I filmed in twenty twenty oh nine, and then it aired in twenty ten. That's the weird thing with TV, isn't it? Where we go, yeah. Oh, yeah I just watched that episode. You okay? Like, because that looked like a crazy thing. I was like, well, that was yeah. that was two years ago. But yes, yeah. I'm fine. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so that was a that was a wild experience to um, to go on that journey. What what was the best thing about it? And what was the hardest thing about The Apprentice? I think the hardest thing about it was the the people who I had to share a room with um, because you struggle to sleep with like eight girls in wow. one room in the beginning. And also just the food as well, just a change of lifestyle. That was the hardest thing, like living in one house with all these people in a pressure cooker environment. But the best thing about it was just all the businesses that we started, all the creative input. You know, we were making cookies one day and then we were, we were you know, selling products in France the next day. And then we were going to a fruit market the next day. So there were so many businesses that we were starting up and it really reinforced my passion for entrepreneurship and doing things on my own accord you know and not not working for anyone else and was the biggest value from that the the publicity like huge publicity that it brought brought you in the business or was it the connections or the finance like what what or was it a mix of everything the biggest value off of the apprentice was lord sugar the fact that he invested in the end um and took a gamble in my business and obviously he came with a lot of positive pr um mm. and it was lord sugar that attracted my initial um, ambassadors to get in contact with me. So I know that earlier you guys mentioned um, Virgin V mm. and that's very much how we started. So I had, hadn't had really heard much about the direct selling industry and or even Virgin V until a few ambassadors, um, actually Virgin V called them consultants, approached us. They saw the synergy between Richard Branson and Alan Sugar and thought, okay, so Virgin V back then was no longer, Richard had sold it, uh, sold it, and he there were loads of thousands of Virgin V consultants that had nowhere to go. And they got in contact with me after seeing Lord Sugar had invested in a skincare brand and thought, yes, Tropic should also go into direct selling. And it was those initial conversations in the beginning that I was like, this makes sense. You know, we're looking for a route to market. I've really had my friend sell for me on commission at 20%. And it's, you know, it's selling face to face rather than trying to get our products into a shop. I love the fact that it was um, not a, a set brick and mortar space, you know, from from just like a, a finance point of view. It was variable. You know, we paid commissions after the ambassadors had already sold the product to the yeah, customer. So cash was cash flow was exactly. good. Cash flow yeah. was good. I could continue making the products. You know, Lord Sugar didn't invest a huge amount. Um, in the beginning, so we couldn't really afford to open up in a shop or have a long credit term with a big company anyway. So it was perfect, and that's how you had, you got traction. You made it made it work. And Sarah Fordham um, has just said, "Yes, I was one of them, as you know, Susie." Yes, she was one of the first people to get in contact with us. Actually, Sarah is one of our. She's she's I think she's number two. She's our founding ambassador. 
one of those original conversations. So one thanks. of the originals. Oh, geez, Sarah Fordham. There we go. Good to have you with us, Sarah. So we've got about so we've got about 10 more minutes with Susie. And I just wanted to uh, mention there's a Q&A here. So if you've got any questions, drop them in there and I'll, I'll look through them, upvote each other. So we'll go to a couple of the questions at the top. Uh, before we go there, Susie, I'd love to dive into uh, this tiny topic of purpose and oh, yeah. how, you've, how you've put it at the center of Tropic. Um, obviously, we've heard this incredible, strong heritage story of yours and, and all the key learnings and values there. But but like we're now in the big game of, uh, you know, skincare and in a, in a world with all this change going on, all these environmental and social crises coming to a head. What is Tropic's purpose? How have you defined it? And how's it going? Yeah, thank you, Ben. Good question. I think, you know, for me, when I look at other businesses and why they fail, why they do well, the, the single biggest thing for me is is passion. You know, if mm. you want your business to succeed, you have to have passion for what you're doing because you will face issues. There will be sleepless nights. There will be times where you just want to throw the towel in. But as long as you have that passion and drive, you will carry on and your business will be successful. And when people lose that passion, the, the, the business will go nowhere. And I, and I knew that for a long time. And, you know, in the beginning when Tropic first started, my passion was to give my mum a better life I wanted to have um, just for us to be independent and self-sufficient. But after that was sorted, I kind of lost my my oomph and my real, real passion. I needed something to drive me, something to kind of direct me and guide me. And that's why we have a purpose. You know, it started off as something for myself to give mm. me a purpose in what I'm achieving. You know, I want to get out of bed in the morning and know that what I'm doing is leaving a positive impact on the planet. It's what makes me feel good about how I choose to spend my life. You know, we have one chance on this planet. Like, this is it. This is our time and our time only to make an impact, a positive one. And everything that you do should go towards a positive impact because it's just the right thing to do, you know? And as a business owner, I have a responsibility to do the right thing and to pave the way, especially for our ambassadors, um, so that they can have that shared passion with me, that shared purpose. And I first came up with the idea of a, of a purpose after being inspired by Simon Sinek, who mm. talked a lot about the why, not the what, finding your purpose. And for me, that's when I came up with um, our purpose, our infinite pers purpose, which is to help to create a healthier, greener, and more empowered world. And it just encompasses everything in, in, in one very elegant block. You know, everything that we do, we ask ourselves, does this help to create a healthy, greener, more empowered world? If it's a yes, we do it. If it's a no, we don't. And it just helps guide us. It's What I love about that North Compass you've got is it, it is it's accountability, right? And it helps so much yeah. with decision-making. I can imagine the complexity of the decisions you're making. It helps helps make those decisions because it's like, it's not me. It's like why why we exist, what we're trying to achieve. And just, just briefly on the, yeah. on the greener aspect. So the beauty industry for a long time has been – uh, rightly criticized for its negative environmental impacts. How do you uphold those strong, sustainable ethics and practices at Tropic? I know that's a big question, but can you yeah. just give us it in a nutshell? Yeah, I mean, the, the beauty industry, like a lot of other industries, has a huge environmental impact. Something like one third of all current waste in landfill is made up of personal care and cosmetic packaging. Like, that's insane if you think about the amount of plastic that's floating in the oceans mm. and landfills. Um, and we have a responsibility. So, you know, we're investing heavily into 
um, sustainable packaging, refills, various things that we're already changing over to make um, just our packaging more sustainable. Uh, we will offset all the carbon that we emit as a business. We um, have a factory that's entirely run on green energy. Um, you know, lots and lots of things that we do to try and just be better for the environment. And it's important to our customers too. And you'll find that in your businesses, you know, customers more and more so will be demanding um, accountability. And, you know, we're, by no means are we perfect. We have so much more room to grow, so much more to improve on. But what's important is progress. And as long as you're always taking those steps to be better and recognize your, your you know, your downfalls, then you can work out solutions and customers will always will always support brands who want to do the right thing. Yeah, and what I love in hindsight and, and in terms of your journey, yeah. it's like the hero's journey, which started with you, we've heard it tonight, but is now you've empowered, well, you empowered your ambassadors and then your customers. And with that overarching purpose, they, they, they then go on their own hero's journey so we can make people's lives and the world a better place as a result. So it's, it's super clear and helpful to be reminded of all of that. Um, I, there's loads of questions coming in. So we're going to try and rattle through a few of these in the last, yeah, last few sure. minutes with you, Susie, if you're up for it, we're going to jump around. Yeah, um, I'll pick, good. I'll pick them out. So Angel says as a responsible business owner, what do you think is the one key thing that should be taught in schools uh, to our children about real life and entering the workforce? Oh, that's a really good question. You know, there's, I, I, there's so much that I think should be taught to kids, like everything from basic economics. I think, you know, a lot of decisions that are made in terms of politics and, and everything. I think a lot of the kids at school should really just understand economics, but also about the environmental impact of just their basic consumption. So understanding that actually every single thing that we do as human beings have a lasting impact on the environment and for them to really see the bigger picture and look into the future. Because I think often we do things now that we think, um, oh, it's, it's going to be fine if we do this now. You know, even like COVID in a way, like no one knew in the beginning it was going to be as bad. We were all like, oh, it'll be fine. It's one of those things. Like it doesn't really matter until it gets really bad. And we're like, oh, my God, we have to throw everything into this. And I feel like the environment is the same thing. Like people don't feel like it's that important to talk about it. Or, you know, maybe they don't teach about it at school still because they're like, oh, we still have another 30 years, 50 years until things get really bad. No. But maybe teaching these kids right now Okay, so you buying a car and driving is going to equate to this much carbon. It's going to have this much impact. You buying a cosmetic product and having this piece of packaging is going to have this much impact unless you recycle it, unless you do this. So I suppose the longer, the bigger picture of human consumption and what that means to generations, maybe even the next generation or even when they're older, but definitely in generations in the future. Yeah, definitely part of the green school movement. The green school movement. I can imagine you at the green school in Bali, where I've I've spent some time. Like how it spread our relationship with nature. That's what it's all about. Which uh, so Dylan um, is asking, "Hi Susie, how do you build your ambassador team, um, and what was your method to enable customers to trust your brand?" Okay, so let me start with the trust side. Um, it's a very very competitive market out there with any product, and trust comes only from either like certifying brand, like companies or endorsements, like not paid for advertorials or editorials, but endorsements from either a celebrity or a particular magazine or an award. So 
for brand trust, we try to get our products certified and endorsed by as many people and companies as possible. So we do not say we're just vegan. We get certified by the Vegan Society. We don't say mm-hmm. we're cruelty-free. We get certified by Cruelty-Free International. Um, we don't say we're carbon neutral or carbon negative. We get certified by the carbon neutral company. We don't actually say anything about our supply chain or anything like that. We actually get everything certified via blockchain technology with a company called Provenance that look at every single claim we make and they back it up. So that gives consumers absolute trust in an industry where there's so much noise and so much greenwashing. Just like with fake news, you know, consumers are very wary of what's real and what's not. So give them reasons to trust you. Um, work with influencers, send them your products and and get them to give honest reviews. Um, so that's a good way to build brand trust, working with lots of other companies. Give your um, customers reason to trust you. I love that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and the other part of the question was about the ambassadors, right? Was it about how to get Yeah, I wish you explained a little bit in the early days about giving uh, commission and, and it, but how did you then oh, go, yeah. I guess, from that level to the, to, to, to the scaling it up? So going out there and meeting our ambassadors, you know, I know we live in a very virtual world right now, but nothing beats a face-to-face meeting and and a real conversation. So right in the beginning when we first had our ambassadors, I remember traveling around the country, um, asking our existing ambassadors to bring their friends and family to hear about what we do at Tropic. And we would literally show up to venues after driving for like eight hours up to like Scotland, to Aberdeen, and having like one person show up to the Mm. venue. And it was heart like it was heartbreaking. And I remember this one particular person that showed up was like, "Oh, I actually came here by accident. I really don't want to be here." <sighs> <I know. laughs> oh God! But that happened a lot. It happened in Cambridge. It happened um, in Cumbria. And you know, there were moments where I used to drive home after driving like fifteen hours in one day, and being you know at a venue where no one would be there, and thinking, "What the hell am I doing this for?" But you carry on. And every single year when we went back doing our various road shows, traveling around the country, you know, it would grow from one person to five people. And then from five to 50, 100, 200, 300. So going out there physically, meeting our ambassadors, encouraging our existing ambassadors to bring their people. But also importantly, treating our existing ambassadors like diamonds. You know, they are they're like the heart and soul of the business and making sure that they feel appreciated, whether it's sending them a bunch of flowers or writing them a a Christmas card so that they recommend Tropic to other people because there is honestly nothing more powerful than word of mouth. So whatever customers you do have uh, or ambassadors or whoever you have in your business, make sure you do everything you can to make sure they feel appreciated, loved, listened to, and then they will do the hard work for you in terms of growing your business. You just need to go out there and and speak to the people they're introducing um, you to which hopefully we can do that lots more again now. So we're going to try and squeeze in three more questions, Susie, if you've still got the yeah, energy to go, go with us. We've of got course. five minutes left, so we really appreciate how much you've, you've given already in the last hour. Um, so Depeche asks, I think this is a tricky question, but let's throw it anyway. What are your thoughts on entering the industry with a new body wash and cream product? Is it competitive? Body wash and cream product, yes, it is extremely, extremely competitive. Um, most products are, unless you have like a brand new idea, but even if you have a brand new idea, even if you have a patent, like it will be copied. So you have to think about the why. Why is your product different? What makes it so special? Is it the packaging? Is it the story? Is it the ingredients? How are you making it? How are you pricing it? Figure out who your target market is and really hone in on that specific target market. Don't try and please everybody. Um, 
figure out who you want to sell to, then collect all the information on all the other competitor brands who are trying to sell to your target market and make sure that your product is better than all of theirs. Because if it's not, there's no reason for anyone to buy your product. So it's very, very competitive. That's just the, the brutal, honest that's, truth. That's, that's the career <laughs> advice coming, yeah. a, coming a generation later. Take yeah. it. Uh, Maya asked, do you feel the consumer and how they will buy uh, is going to change after the pandemic? So what have you seen, I guess, recently? And how, what are you, what's your sense of what, where it's going next? You know, but I'm really conflicted. So on the one hand, I'm thinking, um, this is our life now. We buy things online. You know, if I look at, um, so my cousins who live in China and the way they shop, it is crazy. Like everything is on these like live streamers. Um, you have like these conferences where these live streamers go and they, it's like QVC, but on your phone with various channels and you go and you watch beauty, fashion, food, whatever, and they sell you things and you buy it very quickly on your phone. So on the one hand, I'm thinking that could be the future. Everything is digital. You've got to invest in beautiful video, photography, online marketing, social, you know, SEO, online advertising, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whatever, all the young people are on now as well, advertising there. But on the other hand, I'm thinking, are people missing that personal touch? Are people missing that personal physical shopping experience? Is brick and mortar maybe coming back after we've fully come out of lockdown and people crave that real life shopkeeper experience? So I'm like, I don't know. What What do you guys think? Let me know. Yeah, let us know. I mean, and clearly it's happening. It is happening. My concern, going back to your purpose, is the consumption, the fueling the consumption habits. And this is a whole other discussion. But like, when is when is too much consumption? When is it? Too- too much consumption or how do we get to people like you know all these great brands that we've seen in retail like patagonia which is like buy buy less but buy better spend yeah. more at once but spend better um and it feels like a lot of this direct consumer special digital marketing the chinese example you've just given that trend feels like it's this end it's just fueling like yeah. more and more consumption so it's thinking about responsible marketing around those around those trends mm-hmm. as well loads to consider Yeah. And also being clever about your product, you know, really simple things like we um, launched a cleanser last year and we really tried to think about how we can make it more eco because most facial cleansers like foaming face washes, I like 98 percent water. And if you think about shipping the weight of water, which you get in the tap around the country or in production, it's a lot of waste. And so we made our cleanser into a powder form so that you mix water with the powder and then you're not shipping away the weight of water. And that also means you can have a refill pouch because refill pouches that are completely compostable doesn't work if there's moisture inside. And so you can have a dry powder within a compostable refill pouch, which can then refill the existing packaging that you've already got to be, you know, really, really eco and sustainable. So there are ways, like I say, where there is a will, there is a way. And if we really are innovative and really think about and demand more eco packaging solutions and better consumption ways. And then I, I think, yeah, I think that is the future for businesses that are going to follow. Well, that's the future I'm excited about. And I guess just to wrap up, um, final question is like going back to your personal, where you are now personally in terms of your hopes, dreams, ambitions, you've achieved so much. I mean, you started really early, but under a lot of stress, you flourished, you've created this amazing business community and brand. Like how much, like, do you stay, 
fully focused on that and and driving that forevermore? Or are there lots of other projects that you're like, I really want to go and get involved with education or campaigning, or I've got 10 other businesses I want to launch. What's next for Susie? Yeah, so we already do a lot with charities. And one of my dreams um, when I was, you know, when I was building my business was to build a school. And we're very lucky that we've already done that. We built a school last March in Cambodia. And so with Tropic, I can do lots of charitable, charitable work that I've always wanted to do. But, you know, I think there's a lot of brands and, and founders that I speak to that if you ask them, what do you want to do with your business for the future? The natural answer is to grow it, to take it international, to take over the world, to be the best, to have, you know, more products, more sales, more profits, et cetera. But that does also come with a lot more stress, a lot more things to do. And for me, it's just making sure that we're doing things in the right way. You know, one of the quotes that I always say to anyone starting out in business is to focus on the profit and not on the turnover. You know, that turnover is for vanity, profit is for sanity. Um, and because often when you grow your business too big, you get something called diseconomies of scale where, you know, you actually, your profits actually squeeze down and you end up, you know, not really re like understanding what you're working for. So for me, it's about just growing the business at a steady pace. I, we will expand it internationally one day, but it's just being steady. It's making sure my ambassadors are well looked at. We continue growing the customer base at a much faster rate than our ambassador base to make sure they are all earning good money and continuing improving our products so that we can give our customers their best skin and doing as much charity work as we can while keeping all of my in-house staff happy. I can afford bonuses of promotions and reward them when they're doing great. Um, so it's not like massive, Tropic is going to be the best, it's going to take over the world. It's just, I'm loving what I'm doing. You know, I'm really, really loving everything that I'm doing. I'm loving the people that I'm surrounded by. I'm loving my team, my ambassadors. And it's just kind of ticking that over, introducing more products, slow improvements, but always making sure we adhere to our infinite purpose. So I love that. I love that conclusion, Susie. And thank you so much for sharing so much of your personal life. I know you shared your story lots, but it's such a powerful one, an authentic one, and one that is going to be a book, uh, which will be on the shelf as Rebel Book Club one day soon. Um, and also um, all the all your ambassadors who are here tonight and lots of Virgin Startup founders as well. I can see the inspiration rolling in. And, and thanks to all those for the questions. Sorry we didn't get through all of them, but I think we covered so much. Um, Susie, you're full of, you, you glow, and I'm sure it's not just the product. It's like your whole story and everything that you, you represent. Is, it's really powerful. We, we, last year, we spoke in this like startup uh, sort of founder legend spot. We, we spoke with Simon Sinek. So you're, you're in that spot this year. And um, it's, I have the same feeling right now as I did after spending 45 minutes in his company, which is like huge energy, huge optimism, and, and huge like, like a load of tools that I've been reminded of that are really important in terms of tactics and also mindset. So just really grateful for that, sharing it with you know, exactly. almost 300 people tonight and everyone who watches this afterwards. Um, so yeah. thank you. You've been listening to a Virgin Startup podcast. Virgin Startup are a not-for-profit organization set up to help founders start up and thrive. Don't be shy. Let us know what you thought by leaving a review whenever you listen to your podcast. And to find more about how we can help you start and scale your business, head over to virginstartup.org. 
Thanks to our friends at Virgin Money, we're able to make our meetups free to attend, providing thousands of early stage founders with the support they need to start and scale businesses in the UK. Virgin Money are here to disrupt the status quo. They want everyone to have a much happier relationship with money. Through their brilliant colleagues, inspiring spaces and digital solutions, they are doing everything they can to offer a life more virgin. They provide a full range of banking products and services to help founders at every stage of their business journey. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and that you'll join us next time for more founder stories.